All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys, introducing Shane McCarver. He was a soldier in the U.S. Army from 2013 to 17 and uh, worked uh, with the Afghan Air Force in Afghanistan. Um, And so uh, it says here he has since found honest work as a shipping coordinator for a manufacturer in Newport, New Hampshire. And he wrote this great piece for antiwar.com in rebuke of the dishonorable David Petraeus. Welcome to the show, Shane. How are you doing? Fine. Thanks, Scott. How are you? I'm doing great. Really appreciate you joining us here. So um, tell me, uh, what's your beef with uh, old General Petraeus here? Well, Saturday morning, I was drinking my coffee, reading this article, and got my blood boiling a little bit when he said that the problem with our uh, with Afghanistan was our lack of commitment. You know, after over 2,000 soldiers died, $2 trillion spent, and it was a lack of commitment. That's what this, this guy had to say. You know, that's one of the most selfish and just, frankly, ridiculous things I've ever read. Yeah. And by the way, so that uh, piece that you're talking about is in the Atlantic. It's the same one that I mentioned on the Kennedy show the other night, if anybody saw that, where I was saying, you know, he wrote this, what, 6,000 word or 10,000 word thing about how it's everybody's fault, but his, it's called, um, that's actually the title, our lack of commitment in Afghanistan. (laughs) And I think he does have a throwaway line about, Hey, look, I'm not saying this to absolve myself or anything like that, but then he does not continue on and elaborate that here's where I blew it <laughs> or anything like that. So he clearly is absolving himself. He's saying we uh, snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. Well, what do you know about that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a ridiculous statement. He, he says numerous times throughout the article that, you know, his plan is his uh, counterinsurgency strategy worked so brilliantly in Iraq and, you know, he mentions that numerous times and that, you know, if it just had more time and more commitment in Afghanistan, it, it probably would have worked there, too. You know, he never he never mentions that after, you know, the United States left Iraq, that everything came crashing down, that the Iraqi army fled in the face of an ISIS assault. That, that never gets brought up once in his article. And so it's just it's just a pretty ridiculous statement he the only specifics he really gives he, he's very vague throughout the whole thing about what we could have done differently in afghanistan he 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 doesn't say a whole lot one one thing specifically that he mentions that i have a little experience with he he mentions that maybe if we had given the afghan military more russian made uh, helicopters and aircraft that they knew how to maintain that that maybe somehow would have would have would have helped them, you know, not collapse at the very end, which is just pretty ridiculous. So I, I worked on the contract where we maintained the, the Russian uh, helicopters, the MI-17s, mm-hmm. for the Afghan uh, Special Mission Wing. And, you know, 
yeah, there were some guys who knew how to maintain them. A lot of the, the the old guys who had been around since when the Soviets were there. I mean, these guys were pretty old, the ones who, who knew, knew what to do. The young guys, they had really didn't have a whole lot of interest in learning. It seemed to me they were always disappearing whenever it was time to time to do work. I mean, the, the Ukrainian subcontractors pretty much kept that fleet in the air, too. Uh, so I don't know. You know, Petraeus wouldn't know that. He wasn't sure he was in an office the whole time. What does he know? Somebody just told him that, yeah, the Afghans know how to maintain these aircraft. So, you know, he, he knows no details about that. He just knows whatever report somebody put on his desk. Yeah, exactly right. And, you know, you're so right, too, about how, boy, he just bloviates on for 10,000 words without really ever saying anything at all. You know, if you just had more valor and exercised more commitment and strengthened your strength and persevered through adversity, then, you know, the whole thing is, could have been written by Madison Avenue. He's not even talking about, he doesn't say, well, we did have this and that problem when it comes to the town of Kunduz. And down there in Lashkarga and, you know, in the capital of Helmand province, what our Marines were up against was this and that problem, but they had almost solved it or anything specific at all. You wouldn't even know that there are provinces with specific names that need to be discussed in any kind of real sense. The whole thing is just glittering generalities, as they would say in advertising, right? Exactly. I mean, he, he mentions vaguely that they had some success, limited success fighting corruption, but doesn't specify how or, or you know, how they combated it or what the success was. But if no. you read the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction's report on the stabilization efforts... You know, it talks about the time when he was in in command there. And that's that's not the case at all. They had no success fighting corruption at, at all. All they were doing was giving more money to certain warlords, which was just making the other warlords even more angry. I mean, it was just, you know, you give to some and it makes the rest just even more furious. So it's just creating more allies. Their strategy, it didn't work in Iraq and it, and it wasn't working in Afghanistan either. I mean, that the Taliban was growing stronger. By the day, they, it was easy recruiting grounds for them. Yep. And hey, I quote Petraeus himself in my book saying, well, you know, the people actually prefer their own local kind of customary court system to the one that we have set up for them. Yeah. Well, so what does that mean? They look for their own systems of criminal and civil dispute resolution rather than accepting those of the mayors and the police chiefs and the judges and the political appointees under the American puppet regime. So what's he saying? He's saying there's no demand for what he's supplying and he knows it. Exactly. Uh, you know, they had no, they had no background when they went into Afghanistan, no background of what the people were like, what the culture was like. They, they didn't know anything. They, you know, people, Petraeus and people just like him, all, all, all the all the Bush administration, Obama administration, they all all thought the same thing, that they could fix the problem, you know, that they, they have all the answers. You know, they don't know anything. They, they don't know anything about Afghanistan or the people. And they surely never talked to any Afghans besides the few people high up in the government, you know, the most corrupt ones of all. They never talked to anybody else. So what, what do they know about it? I mean, it, it, how could you how could you possibly have any idea how to how to fix this entire country? When you don't know anything about it, you've never even talked to the people. Right. Yeah, it's amazing, too, to hear him talk about, well, what we needed was a generational commitment. Well, how long's a generation? It's 19 years, 20 years, right? Yeah, so, I mean, well, there was fathers and sons who fought in Afghanistan. So yeah. Isn't that a generational commitment? 
Yeah, we gave him a generational commitment. We got nothing for it whatsoever. He wanted a second generational commitment. No, seriously, after 40 years, it would have been fine. As Elizabeth Cheney said, when should we leave Afghanistan? Never. That's right. Um, No exit plan. You're not allowed to ask that question. Yeah, it's completely nuts. And, you know, by the way, too, what I noticed in there was uh, he never brought up the idea of the popular support for the national government at all. Never mind the local court system as it filters downtown in Kandahar province or whatever the hell. But um, the support for the existence of a national government at all, or especially the one created by the U.S. in Kabul to rule over the people. And it's pretty easy to see why... A lot of, uh, especially Hazaras and Tajiks and Uzbeks, would prefer that government to the Taliban. That doesn't necessarily mean they support it at all. And he doesn't even raise a question, I don't think, of whether anyone in Afghanistan, other than the people directly on its payroll, supported the existence of the regime whatsoever. And how another 20 years is supposed to change that. Right. So I worked with a lot of Afghan uh, subcontractors, civilian subcontractors, guys that spoke, you know, perfect English. And, you know, they were all connected. They, they had families that were well connected and fathers that were well connected. But even they had frustrations with the central government that they would they would voice all the time. So if even they're somewhat unhappy, I can imagine the people who aren't connected, the ones who, who don't have these these great paychecks coming in every every month. They must have been had to be absolutely furious. Why would they be happy with uh with these people coming in telling them what to do, these people they don't even know from other provinces that don't even speak the same language that they do. Right. Yeah, there's something that someone must have told Petraeus that at some point, I think I remember an anecdote where McChrystal was surprised to learn or some officer was surprised to learn. What do you mean our translator doesn't speak the same language as these people? And it's like, yeah, well, they speak Pashto and he speaks Urdu because they're entirely different ethnicities, man. And... It's really, it's, you know, uh, it's not even the same. I was trying to think of an analogy in North America. There's really not one handy for, you know, just asking people to to conquer and rule people who are just, you know, completely different than them. I mean, the 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 uh, Hazaras and Uzbeks inside the Afghan army, they had no motivation to conquer Kandahar province for Uncle Sam you know, or to conquer it for themselves or for any other reason. That's down where the Pashtuns live. You're not going to change that. You're not going to rule over them from far away from with a different ethnicity and a different language. Yeah, it's just crazy. I guess leave the ethnicity and language out, but it's still like saying just Connecticut is going to rule Texas forever and tell us what to do all the time. Like, no, they're not. <laughs> We're going to do what we want to do. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It- Everything he says in this article, it just it doesn't make any sense. He he talks about how, you know, if we had given them more Russian made equipment, then that would have you know made things better. But it's, it's that's not realistic at all. I'm, who in Congress is going to say, OK, we're not going to buy these uh, great Blackhawks and Chinooks from north of Grumman, Lockheed and everybody else but we're going to go ahead and buy some russian made equipment instead and send that to the afghans right hell it's illegal right that's what they had to get the indians to buy the russian helicopters for them back in 2017 right and then get around their own stupid sanctions on the russians (laughs) 
you had two different you had two different uh, divisions almost there. You had the Afghan Air Force, and then you had the Afghan Army Special Mission Wing. So they were just completely separate from each other, but they didn't cooperate at all, even though they were supposed to both be under, you know, the Afghan military as a whole, the umbrella. But they were controlled, you know, by two different generals, basically two different warlords. And for us to do anything, you know, if we needed, if we didn't have, if we needed to put an engine in an aircraft on the Afghan uh, Air Force side, but we didn't have one there and we had to bring it from the SMW side. You know, it, it was a whole big deal. They wouldn't let you take the engine from one side to the other, and you had to get you had to go to the big chief to get permission. It was just every they, they couldn't even work together amongst themselves in the government. It, it, it's just you know they're from different tribes within there. So it's, how could that ever work? Right. And then it it doesn't make sense. And by the way, so the aircraft that you're maintaining there and all that that was all essentially for close air support or. What other? So the MI-17, it was mainly used to uh, transport the soldiers into battle and then get them back out and it would also provide air support. I see. Yeah. Um, and I guess, and just the Afghan army overall, or the Afghan, the two different Afghan air forces overall, was that their primary mission is air support and, and you know, working with the infantry like that? Or well, you know, there's no kind really of real bombers, good... did they? No, not that I saw. There's no good uh, highway system there. I mean, helicopters were kind of the fastest way for them to get soldiers around to where they needed to be. Right. Um, you know, I, I wasn't involved in the strategic side. I was on the operations side. But that, that's what I saw. You know, I always saw them ferrying, uh, ferrying soldiers off to the to the battle there. Yeah. Um, yeah, man. Um, and then and now I'm sorry, what years were you there again? So I was there from 2018 to 2021, uh, July 15th, oh. I think I left. Oh, a year yeah. ago. Oh, yeah. so like kind of right before the beginning of the fall of the thing. Yeah, I, I, I was not happy with the security situation there. I, I wanted to, uh, to get out of there as quickly as possible. Man, so tell me like right at that time, what did you think about the guys that you know, in the Afghan air forces that you were leaving behind, you guys knew that their force was going to cease to exist within four weeks or not. So there was a lot of denial amongst, uh, amongst the, the American, like the longtime contractors and, and, a, and a lot of the Afghans too, that mm -hmm. we worked with that, that this was going to happen. And even that the Americans were going to leave it all. I mean, up until even when I left in July, a lot of the longtime American contractors, they all thought we would be there at least until December. I mean, they, they just didn't believe, and the Afghans too, they didn't believe that we were leaving. I mean, that the, the denial was complete up until the very end. Yeah. From what I saw, they did, just did not believe it, that it was going to collapse. You know, I, I just didn't see it that way. Uh, it seemed to me that it was going to come to an end pretty quick. Man, give me just a minute here. At the Libertarian Institute, we publish books, real good ones. So far, we've got Will Griggs' No Quarter, Sheldon Richmond's Coming to Palestine and What Social Animals Owe to Each Other, and four of mine, Fool's Aaron, Enough Already, The Great Ron Paul, and my brand new one, Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. And I'm happy to announce that we've just published our managing editor Keith Knight's first one, The Voluntarist Handbook, an excellent collection of essays by the world's greatest libertarian thinkers and writers including me. Check them all out at libertarianinstitute.org slash books. 
And for a limited time, signed copies of Enough Already and Hotter Than the Sun are available at scotthorton.org slash books. Hey guys, I had some wasps in my house, so I shot them to death with my trusty Bug Assault 3.0 model with the improved salt reservoir and bar safety. I don't have a deal with them, but the show does earn a kickback every time you get a Bug Assault or anything else you buy from Amazon.com. By way of the link in the right-hand margin on the front page at scotthorton.org. So keep that in mind. And don't worry about the mess. Your wife will clean it up. What a crazy thing. Um, to have be so necessary for the war to come to an end. And have them botch it in such a fall of Saigon type of a way. The way that they did. And complete with the suicide bombing and the drone strike of the innocent family on the way out the door. And all this stuff. It's just... Man, it's like we're living in a novel or something, you know? It's just a disaster. Absolute. If you were a, a fiction author and you were writing about, you know, the most idiotic and horrible way for the war to end, this would be it, you know? Other than somebody accidentally drops a nuke or something, you know? I don't know. Right. And then on top of that, nobody's held accountable for any of it. The 13 Americans that died needlessly, the the seven Afghan children that were murdered after that so that the Biden administration could look tough. It just, it, it didn't make any, it's just ridiculous. Nobody's held accountable. Nobody even gets a write-up in their, in their file. No, no demotion, you know, much less anybody go to jail. Right. Yeah. And they're, you know, whatever shame that they have, uh, I really need to find this because I know I'm almost certain it was in the New York times. I'm going to definitely have to find this footnote and get the quote just right and everything. But it, it was something about how, yeah, no, look, man, what we did in the Middle East and, you know, including Afghanistan this whole time is so bad. It really is. And so that's why we have to double down and pour all these weapons into Ukraine. This is our redemption for 20 years of failure in the Middle East is now instead of being the evil empire overlording it over these people and trying to quell and, and pacify an insurgency, now we're back on the side of the heroes, the insurgents against somebody else's evil empire, the Russians. And it's just, man, like these are the people who run our State Department, right? Like they're just watching movies and speaking in these most ridiculous kind of terms about it. And they really think... Not only are they doing the right thing, but this is kind of their absolution for Afghanistan and Iraq and the rest. And, and just to show how it goes full circle, about a dozen of those Russian helicopters, those MI-17s that we maintained in Afghanistan, uh -huh. we brought those to the UAE because they were planning some kind of over-the-horizon thing that they called it, and uh, where they were going to maintain the helicopters in the UAE and then send them back. Well, anyway, they were in the UAE and everything collapsed. So then the helicopters got sent to the United States. And then as soon as this Ukraine thing happened, they sent those helicopters to Ukraine. So it's come full circle now. Those very same ones. Amazing. Right. Amazing. Um, and now what had happened to them in the UAE? So uh, nothing really. I, they, we packed up some things. You know, the, the helicopter, some some spare parts, mm -hmm. and they, you know, it was a good excuse for them to buy a whole bunch of other stuff, uh -huh. and uh, set up shop in, in the UAE, and then immediately, you know, everything collapsed in Afghanistan. So that 
you know, quickly came to an end and then oh, I see. everything there. They, I see. Yeah. They were, okay, I got you. They were essentially being, you know, maintained and revamped and whatever for Afghanistan in the UAE. Exactly. I got you. Because they didn't have the capability, you know, even yeah. though Petraeus said that they do have the I, capability, they did I, it. I and mean, we knew that. So we were going to set up in the UAE yeah. to do it for them. I got you. I was thinking that you meant like, and then they sold them to the UAE for use against the oh, Yemenis no. or whoever, that kind of thing. But I got you. <laughs> so, yeah, no, and then those same those same helicopters for the ANA are now backing up the Azov Battalion. Ain't that something? Ain't that something? Uh, what a world. Um, well, listen, I mean, the good news here is that America's war in Afghanistan is over, and there's no going back. Uh, you know, I can't imagine what it would take for a president to put ground troops in Afghanistan ever again now. You know, so I'm sure they'll probably have robots crawling around assassinating people from time to time, but hope, yeah, I guess possibly special operations guys from time to time, but hope not. But at least the war to keep the Pashtuns from taking over the capital city is over. That failed. So what the hell? And what a scene, huh? I wonder what you thought sitting at home watching the Taliban just walk right into Kabul unopposed like that. Yeah, it was it was really something to watch. You know, as soon as as soon as they said that Mizari Sharif fell and surrendered, you know, you just right. knew that, that was over. Yeah, oh, way up in the north. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Like, oh boy, you, they you thought this through. It. They got a plan, and it's on. Yeah, I mean, th- this was coordinated well in advance. So, so that's actually another thing that Petraeus said. You know, he he blames uh, the botched pullout. He said that the the deal you know, to pull out at the end of the summer was, was a, was a the big mistake, but the original deal was actually to pull out in May at the beginning of the fighting season. Right. So, you know, the big mistake was then delaying it another four months. If they hadn't have done that, the, the Taliban obviously had this. And in fact, McGregor, McGregor had Trump sign an order to get everybody out in December. So, you know, before Biden even had a chance to ruin her by the, I guess by the end of his presidency in January, no, it was supposed to be by the end of December 31st. And if they'd done that, then, and then the Taliban still wouldn't have really been able to get into gear for the fighting season, as you're saying, for another, at least till, you know, April, if not May, uh, before they even got their ass in gear. And that was what they're all looking for, right? Was that decent interval where, well, gee, if the Afghan government falls now, that's their fault, not ours. And we're not even looking anymore kind of thing. And that was what they didn't get by kicking the can down the road. Exactly. And, and that I'm was sure the military's was, you know, fault, right? Cause they pressured Biden. They wanted Biden to stay so bad. They made him agree to at least review it. And so that was what cost them the time that they needed when they should have been getting out right then. Exactly. Yeah, he's obviously being pressured to, to keep them there. I'll give him credit. I mean, he made the right decision to get out, but he just delayed it for way too long. It, it was, if he had just had had the had the stones to stay a little longer or to to do the right thing and stick with the original deal and get out in the spring, that would have been it. Yep. Man. Uh well, I sure hope that the disastrous pullout hasn't done too much to give pullouts themselves and even this one a bad name. I don't think too many people argue that, like, yeah, we never should have left the way Petraeus does here, you know. And he doesn't even really mean it, right? He's just trying to say, this is somebody else's fault because I got fired a long time mm-hmm. ago. Everybody remember that, you know? Yeah, that's right. 
What a scumbag. So uh, <clears throat> I challenged him to a debate at the Soho Forum. I hope, uh, well, I sent a tweet to Gene Epstein. I hadn't talked to Gene about it, but I bet you Gene, well, I know that Gene at least has the stature to try. I don't know whether he has the stature to really succeed, but he did get Bill Crystal out. And, um, yeah, that was you know, he used to be the business editor of Barron's Magazine. So that means he's an important guy. And, um, so man, and then that'd be funny. Cause then I would just barbecue his ass in front of everybody. It would be hilarious. I bet I could get quotes from terrorists in Mosul about how grateful they are for all the AK 47s he gave them and stuff. You know what I mean? I bet yeah. <laughs> this guy's record, his list is long and I got it all right here, you know? And and you should ask him what he thinks about Assange being, you know, persecuted and locked up for all these years for the same thing that Petraeus did. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exact, yeah. Yeah. In fact, Petraeus is, you know, he even leaked above top secret stuff. That's just discussions literally between him and the president about what they're doing. That, and all he got was a misdemeanor and two years probation. Unbelievable. By the way, at the time around here, the rumor was that the CIA did a coup and overthrew him and turned him into the FBI because they hate him so much. So I don't know if that's really true or not, but that was sort of what the ex-spies were saying. Probably the only good thing the CIA has ever done. Yeah, I know, right? And, you know, the Washington Post talked about how as soon as he left Afghanistan and came to take over CIA, the first thing he did was order the analysts to write up a thing about how he'd done a great job in Afghanistan and everything over there was going great <laughs> when he left. And they refused to do it. And they had a really long thing in the Post where the CIA told this whole story of the Post. Yeah, he tried to make us say that he did a good job, and that's not true. So we, and then apparently they refused to do that. <laughs> like they, they did. I forget if they either did an accurate estimate or they just refused to do an estimate, but they refused to do the one he wanted them to write one way or the other there, which is, I thought, a pretty funny anecdote that he was trying to force that that way. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and, and, you know, we know too, just from the timeline, but also from the great reporting of Seymour Hersh about his role in backing the terrorists in Libya and beginning in Syria before he got canned that summer. So, right, didn't he get, it was what, like June, May or June or, or later in 2011 when he got fired, do you remember? Oh, I can't even remember that. I was, I was still in college drinking beer at the time. I don't even remember. Okay. Well, it was like yesterday to me, but I can't remember yesterday either, so what the hell. But, um, yeah, anyway, so uh, he did get Libya and Syria started off on behalf of the Mujahideen before he was gone, and his successors, you know, picked that up and carried it from there. In fact, Hillary even threw him under the bus. Rand Paul said, hey, man, what's all this about running guns for the terrorists out of Libya on to Syria? And she goes, ah, jeez, you'd have to ask somebody from the agency about that. <laughs> I don't know about that. Which, of course, she does know about that. But that was her saying, hey, if anybody's going to go to prison for treason, it's going to be him, not me. Yeah, I can see that. Maybe Hillary's the one who uh, orchestrated the coup in the CIA there. Oh, that's funny. Uh, 
I wonder about that. Her connections, you know, how how much loyalty she's got there. Probably not too much, but you never know. I get and it, it all the pl- depends on which office. Of course, John Brennan was willing to carry her water no matter what. So we saw that yeah. on RussiaGate. So oh, man. Anyway, um, you know what? You make this great point here um, about these guys. Um, from Ohio and Chicago who were killed in July of 2019. Um, and if this was a green on blue attack, right? Right. So Petraeus in, in the article, he's saying that, you know, towards the end, American soldiers weren't even in danger, that there was, you know, not much to worry about. They weren't in, in on the front lines, he said, which is there were no front lines in Afghanistan. People who were supposed to be our, our allies were, shooting American soldiers in the back, like these two young men. I mean, and they were, the Marines were fighting in helmet and the green berets were fighting in Nangahar and they were getting killed too. Like not that much, but they were dying over the last, in the Trump years, you know? Right. Yeah. no, everything that he writes in this article is, is false. These two young guys died. I I remember it in 2019. I was in country. I, I didn't know these guys, but it was just, it was just very sad to hear these two young guys. One was had a wife back in North Carolina. The other one, his parents, they'll never see him again. It's just very sad. Died for for not, no reason, for politicians and generals too scared to just get us out of Afghanistan. Yeah. You know, the, the um, New York Times ran a story about the Marines down in Hellman and how when they're training their soldiers – they uh, have one of their own with a sniper rifle up in the tower, keeping overwatch on all the soldiers' backs. In, in, they call them the guardian angel snipers there because at any moment, the people they're training might murder them. Like, right. So anytime a bigwig would come by, anytime there would be any American general, they, they would always have guardian angels around them. I mean, they would have a huge escort of bodyguards with them. So, you know, if Petraeus was walking around anywhere in Afghanistan, he was he would have bodyguards. So to say that, you know, they're not on the front lines. Oh, OK, well, you wouldn't go anywhere without a horde yeah. of bodyguards. But everybody else, you know, they're they're perfectly safe. Right. Yeah, man, I'm so glad that you wrote this article and I sure appreciate this interview, too. I mean, I consider David Petraeus to be the great American fraud. And he really should go down into history, absolutely, as one of the most ridiculous and dishonest failures of a joke of a person who ever did anything other than win public relations contests. Uh, and I guess the commandant's daughter, you know, is what a suck-up he is. Ass-kissing little chicken shit. That's what Admiral uh, Fox Fallon called him. Uh, back then, you know, and during Iraq War II, which is exactly what he is. He's pathetic. And that's why he won't debate me at the Soho Forum, because he's terrified that my 130-pound ass will whoop him up and down that stage. That's right. Uh, But wouldn't that be fun? You hear me, Petraeus? I'm calling you out, boy. (laughs) We'll see how good that does. (laughs) That might work. Uh, say it in Pashto. Um, all right. Hey, listen, man, I'm glad you came home in one piece and none of them insider attacks got to you over there. Um, uh, but even sorry that you had to go through that experience. 
all together either way. But glad you're home. Glad you found honest work in the open market, as you said here in your bio. And thanks for writing this for uh, Afghanistan. I mean, pff, about Afghanistan for antiwar.com. And, uh, and keep them coming if you got more to say about uh, what you learned over there, man. We'd be very interested to see. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. All right. Thank you, everybody. That is Shane McCarver. And this one's called In Rebuke of the Dishonorable David Petraeus. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. APSradio.com, antiwar.com, scotthorton.org, and libertarianinstitute.org.